Hello. Welcome. Hi. How are you playing the chicken game again? Yeah, I'm doing it. <laughs> um, I just, I feel like I'm always the one who says hello and welcome to Plants and Pipettes. And maybe, maybe it's your tie on your arm. I, th I thought that's on purpose because I, like, I do all the editing and all the other stuff. So I, f I thought, like, you want to be the one opening the show. But <laughs> if you want me to do everything, <laughs> I'm happy to do everything to you. Wow, that was such a, like, humble brag, but not even a humble brag. Just, like... <laughs> Very passive aggressive. Yeah. Uh, completely um, uncalled for also. <laughs> you do do everything. That's true. Everything. Um, you're also pretty. Well done, you. <laughs> <laughs> I just don't know how to respond to that now. Like, what, what am I supposed to say? <laughs> this is Plants and Pipettes, the show where we are passive aggressive to one another, but also talk about plant signs. Um, and yeah. Hi, I'm Joram. Uh, I just offended Tegan, um, who's with me tonight. <laughs> How yeah, have you been? Yeah, I'm just shocked. I'm I'm outraged, honestly. Like the the <laughs> level of disrespect that's happening here. <laughs> the audacity. It's not what I'm used to <laughs> in Europe. I thought, like after years of friendship, I had broken your spirit, and this kind of back chat was not going to happen. And just. <laughs> Here we are. It's a Wednesday evening. I'm tired and surprise resistance is happening. And I'm out of slapping distance. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> That's the problem. That's what's, No, we do not condone physical violence, but yeah, that might be the problem. There's, um, <laughs> there's been distance and distance brings smugness. <laughs> Have you done something fun in the last couple of days? I've, I've begun my semi semi-annual semi-monthly attempt to have fitness which <laughs> you know starts and then I get sick or I get sad or I you know decide tv is more fun or you know the weather in London is horrible for nine months and then I stop again and I just started running from zombies now again mm. which like you know one of these like running training programs with zombies chasing you um which is really really fun I'm, I'm terrible at it um I <laughs> I look ridiculous. I think, like, I don't think I'm built for running. I think I firmly believe that. I think there's very few people who look really good when running. Like Tom yeah. Cruise. I mean, that's specifically one of his skills, that he's one of the good-looking actors that also looks good when running, while there's, like, well, many no. other good-looking actors that don't look good when running. Well, it's not about like, looking good at running. It's just, like, I don't think my aspect ratios are, like, running. Like, <laughs> I see myself as more, like, if I would run, it would be more that kind of, like, wombat-style running where you just kind of barrel towards somebody <laughs> very low to the ground. Like, that I could maybe manage, but I don't think, like, kind of gazelle-like leaping. Like, this morning I was running <laughs> on a path, and I swear to God, a squirrel, like, ran in front of me on the path in, like a show-off way like it was like doing that beautiful squirrel run where they kind of like flow like a dolphin you know it's very um mm -hmm. yeah like parabolic very the way wavy. yeah and it was beautiful and i just like he looked at me as he ran and i could feel judgment in his eyes he was like this is how you like this <laughs> is how you look beautiful and his little <laughs> tail was like fluffing behind him and i'm just like i'm panting and i'm kind of hobbling <sighs> my foot's got a blister um yeah I think, like, before my boobs came in, I had a very, like, I was very steady. I was very hard to knock over, like, low to the ground. And I think that's what I should be doing some sport where you just, like, stay down. Is that a sport? 
I mean, there could Some be... Some sort of, like, wrestling, like, sumo, where you have to, like, get pushed out of the ring. But, again, that I think that involves more agility and hand-eye coordination than I have. Yeah. yeah. Also. I would have said, like, any martial arts, something like judo, wrestling, sumo. Um, yeah, but I would sort be the one like who kicking just, and, like... And punching, but more, like... Just using balance and tipping over or staying like staying put having a strong footing but yeah you need yeah. some hand-eye coordination there like a little bit i mean bit. that was also pre-puberty like i definitely there was like a switch at puberty where i was like oh like my balance is now like my my center of gravity has now risen this is not ideal <laughs> one morning you just fell over <laughs> <laughs> it was quite quite close to that i was really i was really like smug about my ability to like you know type rope run kind of thing you know balance very well and 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 then just <laughs> i couldn't <laughs> oh my the perils of, of growing Fortunately, up without any major accident <laughs> yeah uh, speaking oh, of yeah. adulthood um i sent something to you this morning which I, I saw like via a random Instagram account that you've also got that as we can discuss. <laughs> yes. um, yeah, so there was a what I saw the backlash only. So maybe you've been following this story for longer. Not, I mean, I only got to know about it also when the backlash happened. But the back a backstory is there is uh, when you think about period products, what do you think about? Yeah, that's right, two dudes. Um, so there's like um, Shark Tank we have that in Germany as well like this TV show where people come with their inventions and then there's like people is with money is it called Shark Tank or did like you translate that no in, in the United States it's called Shark Tank in Germany yeah. it's called Die Höhle der Löwen the Lion's Den or something like that um, but anyway so there, <laughs> so there's this show where they apply for money and so these mm -hmm. two dudes came there and they um, offered a product um, that they invented and it's a pink glove for your period products so you can like hygienically touch yourself remove the period product like a pad or a tampon um then do something that like was very familiar to me from like lab work um you sort of re remove the glove but sort of turning it inside out and trapping whatever you hold in your hand inside the glove i would do i mean that. anybody who's like picked up after a dog knows that as well like you grab the poop yeah. with one hand and then you wrap the bag around your hand and they're imagining doing that with a tampon or like a, a pad as well. Yeah. And then um, there's like a, a, a little adhesive strip on there and then you close it up and then you have it like contained your uh, your nasty product. And then you can like even put it in your bag when there's no trash can around and then carry it around with you until you find a trash can. That's the idea. And I mean, presumably you would like put it straight into an incinerator and then also like lightly flame your own regions just to make sure there's no like <laughs> filth that has expanded in any direction. Yeah. So that's... That's already like a couple of the problems are like overall you could think like yeah i mean it's two dudes but overall if you need something sanitary to sort of trap trash in it's not the absolute worst idea it's it's also not the best idea but it's not like the very worst idea out there um but yeah there's like some some immediate problems like you're creating just more single-use waste and even though they're like their plastic is recyclable once you mix it with other compounds it's not recyclable anymore not when you close it with a sticky tape and you have trash inside and nobody can recycle that properly so it's just more trash that gets to a landfill or gets burned um but sort of the background story for them was they discovered this when they were living together in a shared flat with a woman um and they they saw the use period products in the uh, and I'm saying period products as if it would be something nasty. They saw used tampons and used pads in the trash. And they were looking at that and being like, Ugh, that has Kill to be a better up. way. Um, <laughs> <Mon Dieu. laughs> 
and so they came up with something to hide the fact that there's like a period and then you have like the whole thing around it that i mean this just adds the to the idea of shame around it like you're hiding this this is like a non-see-through um pink glove first of all it's color-coded pink because, pink i mean uh, yeah. th- the amount of like the the sheer volume i could use to express express my distaste and the coloring alone is just pink yeah, Especially when, like, they make a point of it being not see-through, but then you could use, like, a black thing that could sort of not be gender-coded. But no, it had to be pink. It's also called, in the name, like, Pinky Gloves or something like that is the name of the of the brand. So, um, it's color-coded for women. Um, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's more trash. It's coming from the idea that you want to hide this and that you, like, that the female body is unhygienic and that you need to wear gloves to touch it. Um... So lots of like not so nice ideas around it, and then coming from two dudes, um, created quite uh, a backlash online. Um, like- but so they, I didn't actually realize that they originally got the funding via this Shark Tank or Lion's Den thing. So that means that they presented it, and a panel of presumably also all dudes were like, "That's a brilliant idea. Women bleeding is horrific and disgusting." Like, yeah, I, is- I I haven't seen the show, but What's that's the what I imagine. Like, like one of the the sharks or lions or whatever they're called um one of the big scary animals with the with the money um they said yes and they um they got the funding from them and then they would they posted it's like some social media stuff but then it blew up immediately like after airing it on tv and doing like all the 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 social media stuff because you have like new period product announced and you have like literally on the picture three dudes like the two inventors and the guy with the money um (laughs) And then people were like, huh? And then they were looking into this and then we're like, ah, and then everybody got angry. Um, and I think, yeah, <laughs> rightfully so. Um, like nobody's saying that men can't have opinions about what females do with, wait, no, that's exactly what we're saying. Just like, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you can have the opinions. We just like, just have them quietly. Like, I mean, if, I re- <laughs> like, if, if you like, if you are sort of en- an engineering type, and your partner who's uh, who has a menstruation says like look i have this problem and my my friends also have this problem um but like for whatever reason i don't want to do anything myself about it or can't or whatever and then you come up with an idea you talk to them you pitch it you develop it with the people who actually have the problem and then you're the one going to the show um you could sort of see a case where it is okay i i think but not in this way. Just, like not in like when, looking in the trash and be like, Ugh, and then going to your bro and be like, bro, have you seen that? That's disgusting. And then like, we need to do something about this. Um, what do women like? Ah, yeah, pink. Uh, what is a cheap thing to manufacture? Gloves. Oh, let's put a plastic, uh, like an adhesive strip on I it. I mean, also Done. like some, some comments. Firstly, like cheap thing to manufacture. Yes, but they were selling them for like 12 bucks for like 24. Like they were yeah, yeah. hugely pink taxing them. So massive up price because it was a feminine hygiene product, which we see like for everything. Um, and secondly, like, yeah, like as a woman, like, especially when you first have your period or like when you have to deal with your period, like in public places where there's not like, you know, the right sort of accessibility for your needs, it can be like, like not great to have blood around. But like, again, that product is solved by like institutional changes where there is access to like products and, you know, wash stations in the right bins. And also by like a societal shift where we get over this like inflicted fear of, of like a natural thing. Like, yeah, that you can't even see, like they make a point out, uh, out of it that even when you throw it away, 
it's not obvious what you threw away. Um, and so this idea that even in the trash, this is like an obscene thing to see, like a used tampon, a used pad is an obscene thing to see in a trash, in a restroom, in a, like in a toilet. Um, <laughs> just, yeah. Um, so I'm reminded, like when I was a kid, I read... Um, it was a fairy tale of some sorts where there's a king of a country and the king, I don't know, he has a curse, he's angered somebody, like, I don't know, something happened and he, he grew donkey ears. Do you know this story? No. And nobody's allowed to know that he has donkey ears. So, like, it's, you know, a donkey is, like, associated with being a fool. So, it's a secret. He wears a hat all the time and it's covered up. But, of course, some people do know and the person who finds out is his barber. So, the guy who comes to cut his hair has to, like see him take the hat off and see see the donkey ears. But the barber knows if he tells anybody, he'll be immediately murdered. Like, the king will kill him because it's a secret. So he goes and he digs a hole and then he whispers into the hole, the king has ass's ears, the king has ass's ear, and he thinks he's safe because he has to tell somebody and he got it off his chest. He told the hole and it's done. But unfortunately, a seed grow, grows in that earth and then like reeds come out and somebody makes like musical flutes from the reeds and when they play the fruit flute, the the flute tells the secret so that like the plant tells the secret. It's, it's, look, it's it plant-based, it suits our podcast. But... <laughs> <laughs> this whole storyline is very much what should happen if you are a person without a uterus having opinions about a uterus that is not that of your like direct you know life partner like that you know think about it feel free to express those opinions but go find a hole to do it to <laughs> like i can dig you a hole <laughs> Oh, yeah, that's. I'm gonna start getting hate mail now, but just like, no, absolutely, it's just uh, even like even the inability within like your inventor duo not to include a person who is actually affected by this, um, or even like even if you say like, okay, I did this with my friend. Yeah, these these are cis men. Like nobody like, nobody here has a uterus, as far as we know. Like nobody here is in possession of. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah, it's just. And then the, the last thing I want to say about this is then <laughs> today they apologized, and it's like a textbook, um, a textbook apology from like mitigation of online backlash. It's like first, yeah, we're sorry. Then the the next paragraph is all about how happy they are that they opened up a discourse and that there's so much learning to be done now, and that so many people are getting involved, and it's a very good thing that people are discussing I read some this of topic the comments. now. The comments were not a discourse. The comments were like, get back in your lane and like shut the <laughs> <back> up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and um, and then in the end, um, it you always have to end on um, the last statement. Always has to be like, look, we received a lot of hate mail, and uh, for the safety of our families and so, so on, we are asking you to stop sending hate mail. And you can write that independent of the fact whether you actually get hate mail, um, because it will always turn the people who criticize you, that will always give them a bad spot. And there have been cases in the past, I mean, I have no idea if they actually received hate mail, but there have been things in the past where people didn't receive hate mail, but put that in the apology, because that looks bad on the movement who had criticized them, because then it's like, oh, mm. now you're sending hate mail, that goes too far, and therefore your criticisms are invalid, you as a big entity. And like their apology is exactly that if you would look at like a crisis management textbook this is what the apology would look like you just have to replace some words to your product and then copy paste done um 
So, yeah. Yeah, that's something that's, I mean, I don't know the situation well enough. It was like happening in German, so I kind of had a quick look, but didn't go into it. But it's something that's quite common in um, like race issues when it's like a white woman and they like, part of the apology is like to victimize themselves and to be like, oh, I'm so sad, like, you know, crying or like, and this is actually quite harmful in the end. So Exactly. So, but Um, yeah, I mean, it was a fun little outrage, like in the end, nobody really got hurt. It's just like annoying, but typical and not a big surprise because this happens all the time. But at least it was a very quick turnaround until... Um, people were telling them off and being like, dudes, what what the heck, what's going on? And hopefully they lost some money in the process. <laughs> <laughs> um, I wanted to like, this is a related incident which happens, which you might have also heard about. Um, I saw this when it came out like five or six days ago, but then also one of our um, shared friends sent me the link just so that we could have like a that echo chamber kind of rant where we both like (laughs) scream about how terrible the world is and like threaten to burn down the patriarchy. Um, So you might've seen that one of the TUI planes, um, so this is like a a cheap budget airline in Europe. um, It basically tried to take off with way more weight on board than it thought it had. Uh Have you heard about this? Not another word. So yeah, this could potentially be very very dangerous so there was like a serious incident but i don't think there was actually any crashes i don't think um it was just like yeah plane took off much more weight than was expected the reason for this is because the program the it program like the computing magic they used to work out the weight (laughs) of the passengers had decided that everybody assigned miss instead of missus was a child. And firstly, I would like to mention that I've had this discussion before that as a 32-year-old woman who weighs like 70 kilograms, I have not been able to legally be registered as a Ms. MS or like anything other than a miss in this country because they won't let me. I haven't been married and therefore I have to be a miss. So like... It's insane. <laughs> like clearly I weigh more than a child. I have eaten many donuts in lockdown and like <laughs> that plane's not taking off with like 300 of me on board. And secondly, I want to point out that like the company then also blamed like oh yes, this this IT, this computing calculation was done by like another country. <laughs> and they made the assumption. And it's like this is not okay. Like you have responsibility. Like if there are cultural differences or whatever the hell the difference is between like you and the country where the the calculations that like that's still your responsibility as the people flying the plane like <laughs> so it it reminds me of um an article i read a while ago now about artificial intelligence and how the biases that we have are represented in artificial systems that are trained on our data sets. Um, and one good thing that comes from these systems um is that they very clearly visualize the biases that we have, where people all the time say, like, look, we have these biases. I mean, we in this show are saying that, but there's still people saying, like, no, there is no, like, racial discrimination, there's no whatever bias no or something. But then you build a machine that learns from them, and then the machine very clearly demonstrate, uh, demonstrably, demonstratively, um, in a repeated manner can show you that there is this bias, there is this problem, and so the machine gives sort of a tangible proof that a bias that a problem exists there and this reminds me of that because now a machine shows that the treatment as a miss is sort of a a degrading 
treatment treating somebody like a child not taking them seriously and this machine just by miscalculating the weights is, pre is pretty much showing that the idea of having these old titles um is is degrading like systematically it's meant to be um to be not taken seriously because yeah you're essentially like a child and unless you get a man um, well, definitely this this like echo chamber like feminist screaming that my friend and I had with each other this morning was <laughs> like part like that was part of it. It's like the problem is like even like even apart from planes and the difference. So it says here that the average weight of a child is calculated as thirty five kilograms. The female adult is sixty nine kilograms. So there was a flight that took off like in July last year, and it was more than. 1.2 tons over that the weight that they calculated mm -hmm. in the end so that like and then because of the covid pandemic they notice a difference in the weight but they were like oh maybe it's just because people didn't go on the flight because of like there's like a, a change in like flight because of covid which is also yeah anyway um yeah definitely this this fact that <laughs> I mean, we definitely were also ranting about the fact that if you only allow me to have a miss, you are, like, apart from being infantilized, like, misses in almost all societies still, and you can come at me with your arguments, but there is status in being a missus. Like, a lot of countries, and I'm talking about, like, European countries, are you get advantages like not just in like restaurants and stuff but like you get tax breaks if you're married you get like you know it's easier to get housing it's easier to like adopt children it's easier to adopt a cat even like people won't give a cat to a single but like which i mean seriously I, anyway um, <laughs> so like you can get status but only through marriage and i mean the other thing is that these people who wouldn't let me be a ms also wouldn't let me be a doctor which is like your education can't give you status but like finding the right man and locking that down that's how that's like <laughs> that's the only way to get status as a woman but like, are you kidding me what century are we in <laughs> Yeah. Just and this was part of like this whole round. We're just like, ah, oh, <laughs> why world? Yeah. Anyway, shall we talk a little bit about plant science? Plant science. It's the paper of the week. Yeah, and this week, Yoram, it was you who came up with the paper of the week. So can you tell us what it was? Yeah, I, I picked the paper, um, Rapid Evolution of a Floral Trait Following Acquisition of, an, uh, of Novel Pollinators by Christopher Macklin um, uh, from the lab of Maria Clara Castellanos from um, the School of Life Science in Sussex, UK. Uh, published in the Journal of Ecology just uh, a couple of days ago on April 11th. Um, yeah, and it's a paper, I think I found it through um, a press release that sort of summarized it, but um, uh, it, I found it quite interesting because it, it talks about evolution, but on a much shorter scale than you might think. Um, mm. And so, yeah, what are we actually talking about here? Uh, we're talking about pollinators and plants, something we talked about quite often, I think, in the past, right? The idea. The sexy side of plant science. <laughs> I mean, literally, in like stereotypically, the the side that everybody gets the taught by their parents, like about the bees and and uh, the uh, the flowers, the birds and the bees, the birds and the bees and the 
flowers and the trees and the something. Anyway. Okay. In Germany, it's just like the the flowers and the bees. I don't know birds that involved. That makes so much more. I think I've already complained about this. I never understood why it was the birds and the bees. Like these are separate stories. One is about the birds and like maybe egg laying, and the other one is about bees and flowers. But like in Australia, in English, we we talk about talking about the birds and the bees and I was like what are the birds like <laughs> why are the birds having sexual relations with the bees you're <laughs> I didn't get it I was a stupid child as it turns out I just didn't get it <laughs> I think yeah. naive I was very naive <laughs> <laughs> but so plants and pollinators they have this like intricate relationship um, over yes. the course of millennia they lived in the same areas and they need one another the the flowers or the plants need the pollinators to actually have sexual reproduction but to move the the pollen so the male sexual what is what's the right term here i don't know so the male <laughs> the male stuff the pollen is moved into the to uh, a female flower it's the sperm it's the, it's yeah, the, the plant sperm. sperm it's plant sperm that's moved to the female flower where it can then travel to the egg cell and then it forms the seeds and the, the, like the fruit and the seeds inside the fruit and then a new generation can happen. Um, so for the plants, it's very important. And for the pollinators, um, it's, a, it's a food source. They need mm -hmm. the, the plants to survive because they drink the nectar. And so you can imagine that these two things, um, they are, are working very, very closely together. They evolve together um, and all is fine as long as they stay in the same place. But sometimes the relationship between them can change. Like they can have an involuntary breakup, you could call it. Um, because it gets complicated. <laughs> yeah. It's usually not that really... I mean, the pollinators, they can, they can move away. They can be like, look, we're looking for, some, for our luck elsewhere, but often not out of their own volition. Usually it's like something like the climate changes, some other conditions changes, some predators change, and therefore um, the pollinators move away. Uh, and... Either new pollinators come in or um, something else has to happen there. It can be both. I mean, yeah, so it can definitely be like, I mean, this is pretty poignant in the context of like current global change and, you know, also insect collapse that we've talked about a lot. But also on the other hand, you can have like massive clearing of landscapes and suddenly like there's a whole lot of bees wondering why there's like a new urban development where they once had their wildflower growth so like yeah they can be a loss of both i guess we're more interested in the loss of pollinators here because we are looking from the point of view of the plant so yeah and they can even get new pollinators uh because when plants move to a new environment which we talked about also in the past uh, in terms of like invasive species um plants that were moved usually by humans um, but sometimes also by animals to new habitats these new habitats might have the right growth conditions for the plant in terms of like water and light and everything and nutrients, but the pollinators there might be different. And that could also change the plant pollinator relationship. Um, and that's, yeah, that's first of that's like a, a problem that can happen in an ecosystem. And there are a couple of ways that plants can cope with this. Uh, so the first one is that they can just stop doing sexual reproduction. They just do mm -hmm. more clonal reproduction. They just grow more from like shoots, from from root bits, um, from like dropped uh, branches that then take roots again and grow again. So lots of different ways that plants can reproduce without actually doing sexual reproduction. Yeah, but not all plants are great at this, but some plants have some pretty good skills in that direction. 
Um, they can also choose to still reproduce sexually, but basically have sex with themselves. So, like, the majority of plants we're talking about, they've got, like, a flower or flowering plants. They've got a flower which has both the male bits um, in the pollen and the female bits, so that's the eggs. You've got, like, kind of a stigma or a pointy bit in the middle, um, and that's the connection to the female bits. Um, and they can just make their own male bits go on their own female bits. And this is, like, quite often avoided in, in flowering plants because when you have sex with yourself, you don't have as much genetic diversity. So, you know, your mom and your dad, so all the genetic offspring, although there is some mixing from just the sexual reproduction itself, there's like um, crossing over, um, variation is introduced in the process, but it's not the same as if you like meet a whole new handsome flower across the meadows. Yeah. <laughs> um. And the other way the plants can cope with this change in uh, plant-pollinator relationship is uh, evolution. It's changing um, gen their genetic makeup. Um, and I'm saying here they are changing, but they're pretty much they are changed. Their genetic makeup change and selection pressure pushes it in one or the other direction. I just want to make this clear now because I think we will sort of... Um, frame that a couple of times today as if the plants would actively choose to do a certain thing which they're not they just like they they sort of wiggle around in some directions and some outcomes are favored over the others and that's evolution and they're selected but evolution can <laughs> like the, the wiggling around in some direction is more like there's natural variation in the population and the ones <laughs> yeah. that don't suit the new changes basically die or fail to it's not like the plants like mm, let's see if i now grow a longer leaf how that's gonna help me like yeah, usually yeah. not <laughs> exactly like you have like in any very lamarckian of you when i wiggle, to wiggle, make wiggle, point, wiggle, wiggle. <laughs> do not be lamarckian about this um Maria. So we do know that like plants have adapted, can adapt, have adapted over like longer evolutionary time scales. Um, you know, flowering plants, they've massively diversified. They're just like angiosperms are just like winning at dominating the world. Um, and part of this seems to be related to pollinator um presence there's kind of this like relationship that helps like diversification and specification um but plants can do lots of things like get prettier colors to attract um different pollinators they can change and again i'm using like little um speech quotation things they can change to have a nice fit for pollinator mouth organs wow you can really <laughs> tell your own wrote the notes here <laughs> i don't know what the proper term for it was because i think where i read this there was like um like some technical latin words for it but essentially like yeah they their, their tongues and dear god i this paper made me think about bee tongues may more than i way more than i ever wanted to like part of the paper involves them measuring bee tongues they only did it for six bees and i'm not like n equals six and i'm not sure if that's because the other bees just wouldn't stick out their tongues um i'm kidding obviously the bees were dead um but can you just imagine being a plant biologist and being like all right guys it's time like bee tongue and then i started googling images of bee tongues and it's kind of horrific like <laughs> like firstly there's images like look at images of bees licking things and that's already a bit off-putting but then if you actually look at the tongue it's really furry at the bottom because like the furs of course help sort of gather up the nectar but it's just it's not nice <laughs> yeah. like i wouldn't like to be licked by a bee that was my that was my <laughs> my 
my conclusion. Um, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, and the plants can also have changes in um, how pollinators can get into the flower. So this can be like the entryway of the flower, so physical changes, but it can also be things like timing. So like how early in the season the flower comes up, but also like is it open during the day or during the nighttime, depending on if you want butterflies or like moths and bats. So there's lots of things that can be adjusted over evolutionary time, depending on the type of pollinator that's getting in there. And this is an effect that we can actually see quite clearly when we look at um, flowers and the pollinators that visit them, it fits. Like the pollinators uh, find access to the plants, they come at the right time. Um, and so we, first of all, from that, we see there must have been like some adaptation. It's, it's unlikely that this happened just by chance, that like a random flower and a random insect they just met and it it worked um but also even more importantly for this type of effect we can see that there's something like floral ecotypes and ecotypes is something we talked about um before especially in the context of arabidopsis so you have the same species of a plant but then depending on where it grew where it grows um where it sort of what its habitat is like um they the they can evolve to different ecotypes they are still usually compatible with one another, so that's why it's the same species still, but they can have very different phenotypes, so very different looks. And so there are some plants that, um, some species that are spread across a large geographic area, and depending on where they grow, they have different flower types, depending on what kind of pollinator lives in the area. But it's still the same species, which tells us there is some selection pressure that pushes them um, to adapt to the pollinators that are around them so they can still have sexual reproduction going on. Yoram and I have just been discussing how we can explain ecotypes for anybody who is not clear to. I think McDonald's. McDonald's, it's always McDonald's. But like McDonald's in France, they sell McMacaroons. And sometimes McDonald's in Japan will sell rice-based burgers, I think. <laughs> that is a very that good analogy. Been, like that might have been a different shop other than McDonald's. <laughs> it's like adaptation. Yeah. I also I heard a fact about how, I think it was on No Such a Thing as Fish, how the reason we have filler of fish is because um, it, McDonald's was opened in, I think it was very Catholic Ireland, and they were just losing so much money on Fridays because Catholics don't, like, traditionally don't eat meat, red meat on Fridays. They can only eat fish. So there was two alternatives, and one was, like, the fish, and the other one was just, like, a slice of pineapple in the bun. And unsurprisingly, the fish became the popular option. But, yeah, that's an example of, like, adapta- that McDonald's had to adapt to its um, <laughs> environment by developing fillet of fish. And, like, over time, that adaptive capacity, that new gene of fillet of fish actually spread towards the other McDonald's because it was also adapt. You know, there was interbreeding between those McDonald's, <laughs> and it, it became, a, it, like... <laughs> It wasn't selected. What is it like a fitness advantage? It was a fitness advantage and it spread to all the other McDonald's because obviously from this example, we can see that the McDonald's, they're not isolated. These ecotypes still have access to each other and they're still like cross pollinating. (laughs) (laughs) I'm quite pleased with this. I think this is not a terrible, like it's slightly terrible, but it's not completely terrible. (laughs) Yeah, I think it's it's a good analogy. And I also (laughs) like to bring up like a fitness advantage of a filet fish to like a, a fast food thing that's clearly not a fitness advantage to anyone who eats it. Yeah, good analogy. But now let's talk about the plant um, that this paper is about. Maybe you want to say a bit about um, the thing that they were actually studying. Okay, so the study plant here was um, the common foxglove. So it's Digitalis purpurea, which is... 
I think probably people are familiar with it. If not, have a quick look at a photo because then you'll be like, oh, yes, I am familiar with that. I just didn't know what its name was. Um, <laughs> it's a herb. It's biennial, which means that it takes about two years from seed to seed. Um, it has these kind of almost bell-shaped flowers, like hanging in a long stalk with sort of rows. Um, they're purpley pink color. I think you can guess that from the name purpurea. Um, and it's a bit sort of triangular. So like the younger flowers are at the very top and then like they age as you go down this floral um, stem. Um, it's also uh, got a toxin inside it. So it's digitoxin and this, I think we've talked about this before maybe or... Maybe yeah. we've talked about it on our other podcast. Yeah, I, I don't remember where we talked about this, but I, I remember when I was like reading about it, um, that it was familiar. So, Digitoxin yeah. um, can change the way your heart beats. Um, not necessarily in a good way. Yeah. <laughs> uh, dosage is very important. Don't eat foxgloves. Yeah, and um, yeah, you find foxglove in Western and Northern Europe. Uh, so... That's where its native habitat is. But about 170 years ago, um, the plant was introduced to the Americas. And I quite like writing the Americas when, when doing this because um, we have this tendency to call United States America. But this clearly is not about the United States. Uh, in this case, it's about Central and South America. Uh, so possibly English engineers and architects were bringing seeds with them to Costa Rica and Colombia. Uh, and the plant took a hold there and um, grew now in altitudes of around 2,200 meters, which seemed to fit um, sort of the, the, the weather that they were accustomed to. Like cold English weather is what you find at like 2,000 meters uh, altitude in Costa Rica and Colombia. Um, <laughs> they were like, this is too hot. <laughs> Let's go up. <laughs> we want damp. And um, yeah, and in, in, in Europe, where it came from, um, the, the, the plant, the main pollinator is bumblebees. And this is one of my favorite facts of the whole um, paper. In a previous study, um, somebody has found out that when the bumblebees visit the flowers, they travel upwards. So they basically start at the bottom where there are the older flowers and they move sort of up to the younger flowers. And this is kind of cool because um, the the older flowers, the, the flowers have a timing delay which kind of prevents um, self-pollination and lots of lots of flowers do that to make themselves not have sex with themselves. So first um, the male part, so the pollen becomes mature and then that sort of ages out and shrivels away and then only after that's gone the, the sticky female central bit becomes receptive and can have pollen. And yeah, that just means that the pollen from one flower doesn't go onto itself. Um, and here the... The bumblebees are first visiting the older female flowers, so hopefully they're bringing pollen from other plants when they're visiting those ones. And then after that, they go up to the younger male flowers and collect more pollen, and then they'll move to another plant and go for the bottom again. So it's kind of helping the plant make sure that it's having sex outside of its own entity, which is kind of cool. Yeah. yeah. But like, also, who taught the bees to do that? I guess Nectar did. I, I imagine that uh, more mature flowers, they're larger and have bigger nectar deposits. So it's worthwhile yeah. to first go for the large amount of nectar. Um, Somebody's training somebody, like the plant is training the bee or the bee is training the plant. And I mean, it's evolution, so they're both training each other. But it's just, it's delightful. Just also what I just learned um, this weekend when we recorded our other podcasts that we will talk about later in the show, um, that there's also viruses. So the viruses probably controlled both of them. <laughs> 
<laughs> there was that a, wasn't in this one. That was in Tulips. Yeah, it wasn't in Fox Love, but in, in Tulips, it's a virus that actually controls everything. So here with this training question, I don't know. Um. <laughs> anyway, in Europe, the plant is mainly pollinated or prim- like almost entirely pollinated by bumblebees who are moving upwards the plant and licking at it with their disgusting long tongues. But in the Americas... The, in the Americas, the bumblebees still play an important role. They're still actually the dominant pollinator, but they're not the only one. Around a quarter of all pollination events uh, is actually done by hummingbirds. Hummingbirds are very rarely found, I think not at all found in Western and Northern Europe. Um, but they're very prevalent in uh, the Americas, in Central and South America in particular. Um, so, and I think, I think we can all agree that sounds much cuter. Yeah, definitely. Like, I'd be would... much more okay with a hummingbird licking me. <laughs> like, if yeah. I had the option. Yeah, in, in that case, yes. But I have to say, in my garden, I had some very cute bumblebees, like, bouncing around the flowers. Uh, we had an apricot tree flowering a week ago, and it was full of, like, all kinds of, like, uh, honeybees, wild bees, but also bumblebees. And they looked so cute when they're, like, big, hairy bottoms and were, like, bzzz, bouncing you know, around. You know... 38 minutes ago before I'd read this paper, I would have been so with you, but go Google those bee tongues and you'll be (laughs) disgusted, I tell you. Um, So yeah, now there's a change in pollinators. So this this plant species moved to a new environment and now instead of having the old and trusted bumblebees being the only ones coming by, now there's hummingbirds. And the question now is, does that change something? Does this change the game? Do the plants react to that in any way? Um, and that's what the researchers did in the study. They um, did uh, uh, like a very systematic comparison of populations found in the UK and in the Americas. So both in Colombia and Costa Rica, they had, I think, in two countries, like in both Americas, they had in both countries there, they had two locations where they were surveying and they were, had also, I think, two locations in the UK where they were looking at them. Um, and... During the experiments, they would observe the pollinators at all times of day when these floral visitors are active, including early in the dawn, um, and pretty much just counted them. They said something that had like three-minute counting win- windows, so imagine yeah. they had like randomized points in time where they say, okay, now for 180 seconds, we're going to count all pollinators on this plant or these plants, um, and then logging that. And then also watching, like, if they saw a pollinator to come to one of the flowers, they would see what other flowers it went to, basically, like, track it through yeah. that, that period. So it was like, it's very, you know, break of dawn, scientists with, I'm presuming, binoculars, um, like, with little sketchy notepads and kind of peering at these, like, bumblebees as <laughs> like, they do their sexual things. Way too close to the flowers. They can't actually see anything. They're just, like, <laughs> 10 centimeters away with their binoculars. I mean, like, it's all blurry. <laughs> Fine, very thick glasses. Who knows? Uh, it's just, um, yeah. Um, and then they did also a number of, of selfing and crossing experiments where they crossed, like, took um, like pollen from the same plant in the same flower on other flowers of the same plant, and then also outcrossing um, and to see what um, what the effects are there um, to to and- estimate how much potential there actually is to self and to sort of avoid the change in pollinators or like react to the change in pollinators. And then they also mentioned that where they like they did these different experimental treatments and for some of the treatments they covered the buds in bridal veil bags. 
Um, and based on the continuation of that sentence, we can understand that that's something that prevents pollinators from getting into the flowers. But I do feel that's a bit jargony. I didn't know what that meant. And I then Googled it and I found lots of pictures of pretty, pretty brides. So it was very unhelpful <laughs> as a descriptor. <laughs> do you think that's actually like a technical term? I thought it's just like the, the same sort of fabric as a bridal veil, but then just like sort of rubber tied. Oh, I thought it was a, a creepy thing where it was sexualizing brides like on their wedding night. Like I, I went to a much, <laughs> I just a much <laughs> kind of weirder sexual place than you did. I just thought you need a fabric that's sort of allowing air supply and ev evaporation and water and, and everything, but no and Maybe bugs. it's bags, bags made of bridal veils. Yeah, that's what I imagined. Um, probably not like the very pretty expensive veils. It just, with, like, it just seems like a very expensive, like... <laughs> Bridal veils Half seem like of one the of the research budget went to like a bridal <laughs> store where they had to pick out like the beautifully like embroidered veils and be like, yeah, we're gonna cut those up anyway. Just give us a hundred of those. It's like say yes to the dress, but there's like the researcher trying on the veils, and there's like like her best friend and her professor, but also like a bee and a hummingbird who are like trying it out and be like, mm -mm, I can get through. Mm -mm. Like <laughs> this is um i would like to promote that as an example of a terrible reality tv show that somebody on the shark tank should give me money for because they're giving money for like pink gloves <laughs> it's not worse it's not a worse idea <laughs> it's not great but it's not a worse idea so with all the experiments they did they looked at the success of pollination so how likely it was that the, the flower would actually set seeds um, and how much seeds they uh, they would produce um, but they would also look at the floral morphology so what do the flowers actually look like what is their shape do they have any sort of systematic change um, from one population to the other and then yeah the sort of seed yield how much seeds do they produce in total Yeah, so that was a lot of background. Let's get to the sexual activity. Um, they found that the flowers were not very good at self-pollinating. So within the same flower, the male bits rarely got on the female bits and produced a baby. And this is probably the plant of the plant who doesn't want to do that. So it basically didn't happen. Um, although the American lines did have a little bit more self-pollination. And I don't think they really discussed why that was. But it yeah. was basically, anyway, it wasn't really happening. It was negligible yeah to me it, it sounded like they, they had um a little bit adapted um sort of to to self but it not enough that it really mattered um because also they had they found other pollinators quickly enough um that that ensured the survival of the population uh, because in the americas they found that um they had a much more diverse group of pollinators visiting the flowers um, a lot of them were still bumblebees, as we said, and about a quarter, as uh, 27%, uh, were hummingbirds. Um, but there were also like other, um, I think, moths and um, butterflies visiting as well. I think in the list. Um, so, but to a much lower extent, if I remember. Yeah. Correctly. So in in the European, there was basically only ever two, and they were like bees. And in the Americas, there was up to seven different pollinators um, visiting like a cluster of flowers. Yeah. Uh, At this point, they also measured the tongues of the bumblebees, <laughs> which we've already discussed, and it's disgusting. Um, and they also looked at the access um, to the flowers by other insects. And they found, like, for example, some insects were too small to effectively pollinate. They basically couldn't get in because, like, the hairs of the flower, you know, if effectively gatekept them from, from getting inside. Um, 
And they also found that robbery of the nectar was quite common, particularly in the Americas. Um, and this is that instead of going the right way into the flower, so through the opening, um, some some visitors were exiting, entering from the back, so basically drilling a hole in the bottom of the flower and sucking out the nectar, which is completely a lost scenario for the flower because it's getting its nectar stolen, but it's not getting any pollen moved around. So big no-no, <laughs> not okay sexual behavior, like would get blacklisted generally. And that was happening a lot more in the, so I think um, 64% of plants had at least one flower robbed. Um in the American populations, which was, I'm not sure why that was so common there. It might have just been that there was um, organisms that were capable of robbing that weren't present in the UK, but I don't remember them discussing exactly why that robbing was so high in the Americas. Yeah, yeah, they just said that like sometimes they would even switch, like they would be nice on one flower oh, yeah. and then started nibbling at the bottom of the other flower. Um, and they just like got bored of going in the right way and like, mm, we. <laughs> <laughs> it tastes better with crime um and <laughs> maybe that's what they were doing uh, but when they looked at the hummingbirds they saw that um the hummingbirds w were exceptionally good at bringing pollen to the flowers they uh had much more they were much more loaded with pollen and therefore were much more efficient pollinators even though they are just a quarter of uh of the pollinators uh sort of of the range of species that would visit them um they were doing and a very good job and as a reminder they were only in the american populations they weren't yeah. there was not hummingbirds in europe yeah and when they looked at the the flowers the flower structure they could see that the corolla tubes and i had to look up what that is because i'm no botanist that's sort of the bottom bit of the flower sort of if you imagine a flower is sort of a cup shape that extends and then is open at the top um sort of the bottom bit of the cup that's a corolla tube um and uh that's there was a little bit longer in the americas um i think uh 13 to 26 percent mm -hmm. um that compared to the uk um but inside they had the same amount of nectar and overall the plants were the same size so it was not an effect that just in the americas the weather was so nice that the entire plant got bigger and therefore also this corolla tube measure but just specifically the flowers were a little bit longer um but apart from that they stayed just pretty much the same in terms of dimensions and this kind of suggests that a selection towards these longer corollas, which means a selection towards making it easier for things with long tongues and or beaks to get in there and therefore selecting towards the humming. That's kind of the, the idea that it's helping access be easiest for hummingbirds. Um, yeah. 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 And again, this is not like actively choosing that like the plant is not seeing like, oh, the hummingbirds, they are so nice and gentle and they bring so much pollen. So I will be more attractive to them. It's just the ones that had longer tubes and therefore were more attract sort of more efficiently pollinated by hummingbirds and other insects. Then they had a fitness advantage, had more offspring. And over time, um, they dominated. they dominated and became more because, yeah, they just had Only much more efficient survive. pollination. Yeah. Um, so this is not the first um, example that shows selection of flower traits based on the pollinators, as Yoram sort of mentioned at the top. So there's um, evidence of some gladiolus species that has changes in the corolla based on these different ecotypes, so local adaptation, and that in turn seems to reflect different moth communities. Um, Nicotiana glauca, which is a tree tobacco, also has different corolla lengths um, depending on the type of hummingbird and the length of 
their bills, so their beaks, I believe. Um, Narcissus um, papyraceus. So Narcissus plants um, also have larger um, tepals as well as corolla tubes, again, um, based on whether they're visited by a moth versus a, a different spherid pollinator. What's a spherid yarn? I don't know. I, <laughs> I copied that from the paper and did look it up. It's I was a like, hoverfly. It's oh, a type yeah. of fly. Cool. Yeah. Um, so this has been seen before, but I think as Yoram sort of came across at the start, the really amazing thing here is that we know that these adaptations can't have happened in a very long period of time. So those those previous differences, that could have happened over like thousands, tens of thousands, millions of years. Like this is like evolution in the long term. This is like 170 years. And we also know that the foxglove can only like have a new generation every two years so it's only about 85 generations and that's pretty fast evolution yeah and that's why it got my attention that like you you have in 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 the time span where it just takes a couple of a few generations of humans you have like this whole adaptive change in this plant um that's managed to yeah change changes flower cha- shape according to pollinators present um and I think that's pretty much also the bottom line of this paper that I, I sort of want to underline here, that evolution can act quite quickly. It's all dependent on generation times. And if you think about it, it's not a, a very new idea. I mean, we see evolution happening in a Petri dish in bacteria that divide every 20 minutes very quickly. There's even very cool videos with like increasing concentrations of antibiotics where you can see how within a couple of days or weeks, um, a bacterial culture can adapt very quickly to overcome these antibiotic resistances. So so we know that from in, in bacteria with very short generation times, but then um, it, it makes sense that you just need a number of generations to go through, and depending on how long your generation time is, that added up is the time you need to develop a new trait. And I just looked up for this uh, 85 or like roughly under 100 generations uh, for the plant, if we would have something similar in humans with an average generation time in humans of 20 to 30 years, that will take us 2,000 to 3,000 years um, to go through the same number of generations as the plants did. So if you imagine like the the humans 2000 years ago and now we would have the chance now to have like slightly longer corolla tube sizes super long tongues by now just super long <laughs> licking everything uh, and um one link that we talked about before, I think, on a podcast or maybe on the blog, but anyway, we'll link to it, is the story of this medicinal plant that grows in the mountainous regions in, in China and is picked by, by humans. And um, over time now, over several decades, the plants adapted to look more like rocks and harder to spot for humans because obviously yes. all the ones that are easy to spot were picked, could not reproduce, and the ones that are well hidden, they survived. And so very quickly, the humans shaped this whole populations to look more like rocks and harder to spot because um, the humans removed all the ones that were easy to spot. Um, and it's also, again, like genetic adaptation, evolution to like outside selective pressure, in this case, humans picking them, um, but in, also in a very short time frame. So yeah, that was Rapid Evolution of a Floral Trade Following Acquisition of Novel Pollinators by Christopher R. Mackin from the lab of Maria Clara Castellanos, published in Journal of Ecology in April this year. It's open access. We'll link the paper. It's quite interesting. And if you are into bumblebee tongues, go check it out. <laughs> I don't think that's the take home message of the paper this at all. This is where the fun begins. This is where the fun begins. This is where the fun begins.
While we're on the subject of pollinators, I wanted to mention that there was a review that came out in the Journal of Applied Ecology. Um, it's, it's a bit old. It was out November last year. Um, and it's, it's a meta-analysis that is looking at the fact that larger pollinators deposit more pollen on stigmas across multiple plant species. And it's basically there in the title. They did a meta-analysis. Um, they looked at tons of different um, plant species and they found that the bigger the pollinator, the more the pollen... And to be honest, when I, I saw this, I was like, okay, so who cares? Like, <laughs> I mean, ultimately, what you need is like a couple of pollen to get pollination. Like, you don't need 80 billion pollens. And if you think of how small a pollen grain actually is compared to what a bumblebee is carrying around, I was like, I don't know that bigger really is better. Like, more is more, but is more actually better at getting um, fertilization and quality fertilization? Um so maybe there is some links between, you know, the amount and, you know, having good quality and having like good chances of fertilization. I don't think you need millions still. But um, uh, but there is a research article that came out just a, a week or two ago in Science Magazine that is kind of also on this theme. It's by Lou et al. And it's pollen PCPB peptides unlock a stigma peptide receptor kinase gating mechanism for pollination. We'll put the link and in case that's old jargon to you. Basically, <laughs> what it's showing is that the the stigma, so the female part that's waiting there to to have some to grab some pollen that sticky bit it's basically got a gatekeeper that is making the the environment where the pollen's going to come in not super ideal for the pollen so it's producing reactive oxygen species it's sending a message that makes reactive oxygen species um be produced and these are basically nasties and they just like make things unideal um and it's just like churning this out and being like, be gone, pollen, be gone. Which is also <laughs> good because if a whole lot of dust blows onto that environment, you don't want to open the gates and let dust into your precious, precious ovary tubes. You just, you want, generally you want dust out of your ovaries. I think that's a lesson for <laughs> all of us. Um, but then when the pollen start coming onto the stigma, there's something in the coat of pollen, which then competes for this agitator. So like the there's an angry thing sending a message and the pollen then sends a message back that blocks the angry thing. So basically there's like a little wrestling match between the, the 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 gatekeeper and something from the pollen. And then once there's been enough of these um warriors sent from the pollen, that will basically overcome it's very Donkey Kong, I think. It's very like, you know, Mario Brothers and you like play that ultimate <laughs> big what's it called? The big guy at Smash the end Brothers. of the game. Sure. Uh, and you have to overcome that. And then after that, that prevents the toxic environment from happening. And like the, the subsequent pollens can become hydrated and open the gates and pollen germination can happen. So maybe having like some pollens come first is helping to fight the warrior that then opens the gates for the other pollens. So maybe like a volume is good. 
I'm getting this from the abstract because I could not get access to the full text. If anyone out there <laughs> has seen it, I looked on Twitter and I looked online and I haven't been able to see it yet as an open access version, but it sounds super cool and interesting. Yeah, and it reminds me of human biology. I remember in biology class, they, there was this... I think it must be from the 70s, like where they st stuck like micro cameras in there um, and showed like the flow of the sperm inside the vagina and so on and how, how hard it had to sort of find how many, how much of the sperm is lost due to the defenses of the, of the vagina um, that are there to protect uh, against infections. And therefore, s sending a single sperm in technically is enough and like sometimes can be unfortunately enough. Um, but like it's like a larger volume and means that you have a higher chance of success there. So that's what I remembered, but I, I'm fine to cutting that out. <laughs> no, I don't, I don't think we should cut it because this reminds me that there is the most beautiful video. Like there was a TV program. I think it's, I'm just looking it up now. Okay. It's called the great sperm race. It was <laughs> a documentary that came out in 2009. Um, and, it shows the journey of 25, 250 million human sperm as they race to fertilize a single egg. But firstly, it's narrated by Richard Armitage, who is a very sexy man and has a dreamy voice. And, you know, he does like period dramas. He's also um, the main dwarf in The Hobbit. Um, and secondly, the sperm are played by people. So you see this video of like people dressed as sperm, like running towards the egg and they're like running up a hill. And at some point, you know, some of them fall down. And <laughs> I, I mean, I haven't seen this for like 10 years and it's ingrained in my memory. <laughs> Beautiful. Like I just, <laughs> I can't find the full clips anywhere. No, I think I, I just Googled and it's like there's a, 51 minute video on youtube um so i imagine that's like that an illegal copy that will get everybody thrown in jail who watches it um so it might be the full thing uh, i have also a pollination related fact uh, i found a story about butterflies who are exceptionally extraordinarily um helpful when pollinating cotton fields um, this is from a, st uh, a study that was also recently published um, where they studied um, the researcher called Kasser. They studied um, insects in cotton fields and over three years they traversed nine hectares of cotton fields hunched over looking for pollinators. And what I found amazing is that they often went barefoot um, because it was very muddy and old shoes and everything would have sort of stuck in the mud and be sucked off anyway from the, from the feet. So they, they just went barefoot. Um, and when they found an insect, they would um, capture it with a net and store it in a vial of ethanol, which first sounds great for the insect. It will have a great buzz, but then it that's the end of the insect. But then in the lab, the researcher, she um, identified these insects that were over 2,400 um, different insects uh, and looked at what pollen they were carrying. And um, they found... 40 different bee species, 16 fly species, 18 butterfly species. Um, and they discovered that um, the different pollinators, they would do, uh, visit different parts of the plant. So we already said today that the, the bumblebees, they like to go from the oldest to the youngest uh, flowers. Um, but there's also, for example, honeybees. They like to go sort of to the inner um 
flowers that are closer to the stem, while other pollinators like butterflies and some some other uh, hoverflies and so on, they like to go to the outer layers of flowers. Um, um, probably that also sort of evolved itself into this niche that the, the bees know nobody's going inside so that's where more nectar is for us and the other ones are not as great flyers so they stay outside where they don't hit the branches and so on um, so they have a higher chance of, of finding a flower and, and drinking the nectar there and this is a phenomenon um, that I learned from this article it's called um, pollination complementarity so uh, something that's not unique to cotton, the idea that um, you have just d different locations of flowers have a different chance of being v uh, visited by pollinators, um, by different types of pollinators, and they sort of complement each other so that all flowers sort of find their are pollinated at one point, um, but just not from the same species. Um, so yeah, that's the story about but and butterflies in cotton fields apparently um, they do a bitty big contribution um, different bee species are still the most important there but it's like in a range of i think 120 billion dollars or something that you can attribute to the um, to the butterflies if they wouldn't be doing this pollination you would get that much less cotton developing wow. yeah um, mm -hmm. which is still in terms of the total volume just like a smaller fraction but still not Some nothing monies. yeah so yeah butterflies important too for pollination so on a bit of a different topic i think i want to talk about pollination um and this time it's <laughs> in <laughs> a beetle so there's a paper that just came out in nature plants a couple of days ago and it's talking about um angiosperm pollinivory in a cretaceous beetle so the pollinivory implies that it's eating the pollen mm. yeah that makes um, sense. <laughs> and we've kind of, we've, I think we've touched upon this beforehand. We've talked about a, a sample. I think in one of the podcasts, we talked about a sample of amber that had a, a bug inside it. And based on the shape of the bugs, like mouthpieces, it was suggested that this guy was already like eating um, pollen, but I also might be doing like helpful pollination things. So that was a very old example. This article is cool because they found not only the beetle itself, so it's a short-winged flower beetle inside this amber that comes from the mid-Cretaceous, but they also found um, some pollen next to it. And most importantly, they also found some beetle poop. And the beetle poop is what had some pollen in it. So they could like really directly show... Mm. He he sees pollen. He eats pollen. He poops pollen, um, and that's a nice like kind of novel. Do you know, or do they say some, something about this? If this is sort of an evolutionary precursor to the development of nectar, I could imagine at first the plants would just make pollen, and they would make a lot of pollen, so that beetles would eat some of the pollen and carry some of it with it. But later, the plants would realize or evolve into um, providing an alternative food source that's not pollen. Um, that's then feeding the the insects uh, without actually eating on the thing uh, eating the stuff that the plant wants to be distributed um i mean that's, that's just wild speculation for me now so good question um no i have no idea actually um when nectar came about as opposed to i mean nectar doesn't seem like it's that hard to to produce it's it seems like costly but it's basically just sugar and water so i feel like that doesn't seem like it would be a super recent development. This is 99 million years old. So if 
Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not yeah. sure if there was nectar also. Um, I do like so the authors also wrote a a blog post about this, and they have a, a thing that says that we would never have guessed that one day we would write a paper about the fossil fecal pellets of beetles, and yet here <laughs> we are. And I thought that was quite nice. <laughs> Uh, on the topic of sort of weird discoveries um, that you might not think, like you might not think to find pollen in beetle dung uh, that's like ancient. Um, there's also a study now done. <laughs> this feels like such a difficult segue. It's it is it is. People, I hope I hope everybody can can understand how much I struggle to segue. Um, and there's no need for segue. I could just say like another thing that I read. This is interesting. I made this harder for myself than it has to be. <laughs> so um in in the united kingdom at q uh and i, I like that it's like it's spelled k-e-w but to me it's always just like the letter q um it sounds mysterious like a, a city made by bond um <laughs> this is also not relevant to the information um, but at Q, what I didn't know that I knew that there's like very famous botanical gardens in Q, and they do like botanical, like botanical garden research. I think there's even like a proper term for this, but sort of figuring, <laughs> learning about plant species by having them in your botanical garden instead of in the wild. Um, but they also have a, a, a very large seed bank. Uh, a seed bank is a place where you store seeds for long-term preservation. Um, the most famous one is the one up there in Spitzbergen under the ice, um, where we sort of have the global seed vault uh, where we keep. And I think we also did a story about this, about the restoration of um, of seeds from there. Um, uh, uh, but in Q, there's also a big seed banks. They have 2.3 billion seeds from almost 40,000 species um, stored there. And Rowena Hill analyzed fungal and endophytes in these seed samples from the seed banks. And that means that um, they looked at seeds and found little pieces of fungus in there, um, sort of so a different organism uh, and then analyzed what kind of uh, fungus species that that were and they found um, almost 200 different fungal species um, in just a very small sample size of six plant species um, so extrapolating from that to like the 40,000 plant species that exist there there will be um, an estimate of fungal diversity that are hidden in that seed like the seeds are kept because of the plants that you want to grow out of them but sort of trapped mm -hmm. within these seeds are millions of different species of fungi. Um, and this is pretty pretty interesting. For one, fungi are massively understudied. Um, only a few hundred thousand of them are described when there's potentially millions of species. Um, and they even like in the article that we're linking, there is a graph that shows like how many papers you have like on, on, on uh, I think, bacteria, plants, and fungi. And fungi is just like a tiny little fraction while you have like lots more research on the two other sections um, but the very interesting finding from this study is that when you have a seed and you have a fungus inside there you almost always only have one species of fungus in there which means that oh cool um, once there is a fungus inside no other fungus can get inside the seed anymore and obviously there are harmful and beneficial fungi or also like harmless fungi that don't do anything um, so a valid strategy potentially could be, and this is a hypothetical here, um, to figure out which fungi are harmless or even beneficial and then inoculate your seeds with these fungi before storing them long-term so no other sort of mold can grow over them and uh, destroy the seeds from within. Um, 
So that's an interesting yeah. sort of outcome from this study of, of fungi in seeds um, that could lead to better seed preservation. Yeah, we did mention a study before, I think it was in tomato plants that showed that there were microorganisms associated with the seeds that were passed down from the parents, which actually helped those um, tomato plants have more resistance against um, nasty like bacteria infections when they grew up. I think that was stuff that was on like the outside of the seed more than like internally in the seed, um, and it was like a mix of different microorganisms. But yeah, it's definitely an interesting. Speaking of things found within plant parts, bam, named it, nailed it. <laughs> so I think we've talked very briefly before about phytoliths. So phytolith basically means phyto plant and lith is like a stone. So it's stones that are found inside plants. And basically it's really tiny, small, spiky structures made from silica. They can come in all different shapes, um, but they're, they develop inside plant tissue and they're hard and crunchy and it's basically there to be the equivalent of that thing where when you eat your spinach and you haven't washed it properly and you crunch on sand and it's really off-putting it's literally like sand inside the leaf and the point is to irritate herbivores and make them not enjoy their meal so it's a defense mechanism and these little tiny phytoliths these like plant stones that are internal they're made from silica deposits so plant takes up silicon and then like makes these little little structures. And silicon has like multiple different benefits in the plant. So apart from having these spiky phytoliths, um, which is like a physical defense, it is also um, some seems to have some sort of suppressing activity against certain molecules that pests themselves produce. So it sort of acts as like... Um, a defense in that way and then also the presence of silica is something that um, acts to feedback to tell the plant to upregulate its own defense um, like so it's genetic defense mechanisms um, and you know there's also like signaling for phytohormones and stuff like that so silica is a pretty important thing for plant um, morphological biochemical and molecular barriers that prevent like herbivores and other pests from destroying them and there was a, a recent study that came out in Global Change Biology. Um, it was published in March this year by Biru, Biru et al. And it's anti-herbivore silicon defenses in a model grass are greatest under Miocene levels of atmospheric CO2. So basically they looked in um, Brachypodium distachians. So this is um, a, a model, quite simple grass species. And it became a model because a lot of the grasses that are actually valuable to us, like crops like wheat, have very big, bulky, complex genomes. So people sort of, and they're also, they take longer to grow. So people sort of adopted Brachypodium as um, the the favorite species um, to study. It's, it's false broom or stiff broom is the common name, but mm -hmm. I think it's not really familiar to us outside of the scientific, at least not to me outside of the scientific yeah. context. Anyway, um, they grew this brachypodium under different carbon dioxide um, levels. So they had sort of pre-industrial reduced levels. That's 200 parts per million um, carbon dioxide. Also ambient, which is around 410 these days, up to 420 in some parts apparently. Um, and also elevated, so 640 parts per million. And they also did some other treatments like adding silicon to the... Um, the growth medium or the growth, the soil, I guess, as well, and, and looked at the changes. And what they found is that 
there was an increase in silica concentrations inside the plants by about 30% if there was lower carbon dioxide um, and less under like ambient and increased carbon dioxide. And this reduction led to um, increased herbivory or it like had less negative effect on the herbivores. So it's limiting mm-hmm. the plant's ability to defend itself when there's there's less silicon inside them, as we kind of know. It's like a nice kind of cause and effect. But they do also say that, hey, um, this could be another thing to watch out for if carbon dioxide levels keep rising. It might also interfere in, in another and a whole new <laughs> way with the plant's ability to defend themselves. But Yay. that that kind of <laughs> terror aside... Um, yeah, I think it, it's quite interesting, these I little know, silica deposits. Did you say that at the top that do like all plants or many plants do this? Or is it specific to just like a smaller group of plants like grasses? I don't think it's all plants, but it, it is, it's lots of different types of plants. So I think we've come across it in like ficuses before. Um, yeah, I don't think... Let me just have a quick look. Okay, so on the Wikipedia article, there's different families. So there's like a bunch of families that have really high... Um, Phytolith production, there's some which have, they have it, but it's not common. Others where it's common, where it varies, or, and there's some where it's like rare and not observed. So I guess it's sort of, um, yeah, it varies across species, but it's it's definitely not uncommon. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So maybe sometimes it's not me not washing my spinach properly. It's just like the spinach has phytolith in it. No, I don't so. think your teeth are sensitive enough. Um, but it was also something that our paleolorax mentioned on um, when she visited our podcast. So Ali also brought it up. And this is also comes up is that they, because they're basically like sand, they don't decay very fast. So it's quite important in um, paleontology as well. Hmm. So they are abundantly present in the fossil records. I have, uh, like, we're very good with plant facts today, Tegan. <laughs> I have another so many, plant and fact. I have more plant facts, but I think I can save them for next time. Um, I have one about plant memory, um, about mem- uh, remembering drought. And there's a publication uh, by Bo Shu, uh from the lab of, where, where's the last name? Uh, Matthew Gilliham, um, published in Nature Communications recently uh, about signaling, um, specifically about a molecule called GABA, gamma-aminobutyric acid, um, a very important, uh, yeah, a very good uh, style of music and also a very important uh, signaling molecule. And what I liked about this story, it's like, it's very short, but it's a very uh, cool mechanism or very simple mechanism that explains how plants actually sense and integrate signals from the world because they they don't have a central nervous system. So they need other methods of actually taking signals together, making decisions and then reacting accordingly. And in this case... um, the the there's a link to drought with this GABA molecule um, because it accumulates whenever it is dry and the drier it is the more accumulates during the day so when you have a very dry day there's like more and more GABA piling up inside the plant cell and then uh, the next morning um, the plant senses how much GABA is there like how big is the pool of GABA and then based on that it decides um, how how much it opens its leaf pores so the stomata um, sort of mm-hmm. it says like okay yesterday was a very dry day so today i will not open my stomata a lot to avoid further water loss and then the cycle repeats it again measures how long it sort of it always takes a, the previous day to figure out how much 
it will open the, the stomata today. Uh, mm -hmm. And this sort of very short-term memory is not something that's particular to, to GABA and stomata opening. It's very similar to the way Venus flytraps work when they measure how often they have been touched because they usually don't close on the first touch of a prey, but they need a couple of repeated touches before they actually close. And that's done in a very similar way by calcium levels. So every touch triggers a, a, a pulse of calcium And when the, the calcium pool is big enough, then the the Venus flytrap decides, and I put again like air quotes here, um, sort of the internal mechanism is triggered that it then will actually close. Um, uh, and it's sort of in a Venus flytrap, it's on a very short term level. In the GABA, it's like over the case of a day or two um, that it's measuring that. And I quite like the idea. It's just like building sort of the blocks and then then in the morning it's like okay how much do i have from from yesterday oh yesterday was very dry um by by probability today will also be dry so let's be careful i have something and i hope you haven't heard this i haven't seen this before but it's something i want you to listen to and tell me what it is let's see if this works my sound is on mute i hear bells ringing this some type of um, sonification turning scientific data into sounds I'm, I mean yes but what um, I, mean, <laughs> uh, I, I don't know usually these things are DNA sequences or editing events or mutations that are happening in a plot All right, of we want to be thinking a bit bigger so we're, we're on a different scale go up a few scales the, the universe down a few scales <laughs> Somewhere in between My DNA bedroom. and the universe. <laughs> there, it could be in your bedroom, but it's not your bedroom. And we're thinking smaller than a bedroom and with more legs than a bedroom. Uh, spiders, mites. That's the one. It's a spider. So it's actually the, the sound of a spider's web. So um, spiders are, are usually blind. They're not seeing things, but they have sort of their, their legs attached to their web and they're feeling the vibrations. So it's a sonification of the vibrations that the spider is feeling um, to sort of understand how the, the spider is, is sensing things in its environment, which is quite nice. Um, I'll put the link to the, the article there. Um, Cool, huh? Yeah, cool. Uh, then uh, I have also some as a cat fact today. Wait, let's play the cat fact jingle. Let's do ah. Cat fact. Talking <laughs> of things with many legs that sometimes make sounds. <laughs> <laughs> let's talk about cats. And um, today I have a, a story about. Um, researchers figuring out how cat whiskers actually work and what i didn't know about cat whiskers is that studying them in situ so in the actual inside animal, the cat <laughs> inside the cat is very hard because first of all you're always distracted because the cat is very cute and cuddly and you want to pet it instead of dissect it that's one thing Ew. But, but also um uh yeah the It's a very tiny structure and you have um, complicated nerve cells in there the, at the base of the whisker because the whisker itself, it's just a long rod. Like it doesn't have any active bits in it. You have to imagine mm -hmm. it like you're holding out um, a sort of flexible PVC pipe 
um, but you're not sensing everything along the PVC pipe. You're just sending it in the hand. Mm-hmm. But your hand is like a tiny hair follicle that's in, in the whiskers. And therefore, it's really hard to sort of look the into that and see what's going it, on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So in this case, they used modeling, computer modeling, based on some previous experiments in rats. Um, uh, and looking at the structure of the hair follicle, they did a, mod- uh, a modeling where they actually used like some, some knowledge from, from um, material physics for like the way the, the whiskers bend and how that translates then back into the way the thing bends in the follicle. And in the end, they figured out that it sort of um, bends into an S shape in inside the follicle and sort of where the, the bulgy bits of the S are, these are areas where there's a, a bigger density of nerve cells. And so mm-hmm. when the whisker bends and turns into this S shape, it sort of pushes against these nerve cells and the intensity of this push can be sensed then by cats and, and rats and, and animals with whiskers. Um, and the modeling showed like a behavior that could not be observed sort of by actually looking at the whiskers. Um, so yeah, new knowledge about cat whiskers uh, and in the end, they even said something about a link, how you can use that in humans, but I forgot what it was. <laughs> so I'm not going to speculate on that. Just yeah, read the article. I really... In the end, I say something of what, what else we can learn from it uh, for, for humans. No, a really big shout out to the person who wrote this article because there's a line that says, and while we don't have whiskers of our own, <laughs> the team <laughs> thinks research into human touch will benefit from the study again as well. Beautiful. Well done. <laughs> Yeah. Okay, so that's the end of our show. I think um, before we leave, we want to plug our other podcasts. So last weekend, we recorded another episode of the Plant Book Club, which is a, a plant book club. It's quite self-explanatory. That was founded by Ellen Earhart. Um, she herself has the Plant Crimes podcast and is also a journalist writing science um, science popular science articles. That's how I say that. Um, And this time we did it not only with her, but also with Judith and Melissa, who are part of the Flora L Design Company, which involves uh, making materials, fabrics based on microscopic images of bits of plants. So like plant cells or or like xylem structures, internal structures. Um, And it was really nice to talk with all of them. So we read the book The Botany of Desire by Michael Pollan and we have discussions about that and it was I think it was quite a fun one this this time. It was like a really enjoyable book to read and we had we had thoughts. As usual, Yoram didn't bother reading his book. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's not true. Usually, yes. Usually, I don't bother reading my book. This time, I had no chance because my the the I couldn't get it delivered. Because right, his homework. Mm-hmm. Like it was like on order for like four weeks or something um, until I cancelled it because the date of recording approached and then there was no just use. suspicious how you're always sending me messages about how germany is like the center of the eurozone and just has like <laughs> i would never say anything positive like that <laughs> not in these days like every day a barrage of messages being <laughs> i just love this country and its leaders everything is perfect here tegan tell me tell you how much everything is perfect <laughs> Our b- ability to do modern technological things surpasses that of all other nations, that one I hear often. <laughs> <laughs> we just, uh, like, if it's digital, we just know how to do it. Like, it's just yeah. in, our, it's in our DNA. And let me tell you about copper internet. 
<laughs> so yeah but it was a very fun episode um check out the plan book club we're linking it uh, you can find it in all podcast apps but we're also linking to the episode in the show notes so yeah we should mention that flora l design also have their own podcast um it's called flora and friends is that correct <laughs> yes. is that what it's called yes it's flora Fuck and me. friends let me double check I think it's Flora and Friends and they do a sort of mini series about um, different types of plants and it's very charming very interesting I learned a lot um, and I think you even brought a fact that you stole from their show about yeah. um, this visual effect on of some flowers that seem to blink uh, sort of uh, in, in yeah the that was nasturtiums um, so that was the first uh, three episodes I think and they're now on to pelargoniums yeah they're really, they're really short. So the idea is that the episodes should sort of last as long as it takes you to sit down and have a little cup of tea. So it's like a, a nice, really short, informative, really enjoyable. Um. Yeah. Okay, so if you want to find us, you can follow us on Instagram and on Facebook. That's at Plants and Pipettes. On Twitter, you can talk to me. That's at Plants Pipettes. We also have the blog on www.plantsandpipettes.com, but we're taking a break for the month of April because we're doing a kind of daily Instagram challenge on instagram i think that's self-explanatory um but we'll be back in we're back in may with lots of new episodes and the opening and closing music is caravana by philip gross um and that's it goodbye bye